to Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond. Welcome to Executive Perspective. I'm your host, J.D. Cathurio. Today, our guest is John Sutton. John has been in the government contracting business since 1986 and has held leading roles in the M&A deals totaling $4 billion. He was recently COO of KW starting in May 2017 until it was successfully acquired by Jacobs Engineering earlier this year. Prior to this, John led the integration of Sotera Defense to KW. Okay, John, my first question for you is, can you briefly describe to our audience about your background and how you got involved in the GovCon business starting back in 1986? Certainly. Thank you, J.D. So I came to Washington in 1986 after five years in the Merchant Marine serving as a ship's officer on U.S. flagships. What attracted me was an ability to work in shipbuilding, but work in an office job. And I found a company called Advanced Technology, and we had a large contract with the Aegis Shipbuilding Program to design and help build and produce Aegis cruisers and destroyers. So I spent 10 years there. That company was bought and sold a few times. And from there, I moved to a company in Tyson's Corner that was more into space and intelligence, doing modeling and simulation in a lot of very sensitive areas. We built that company and, and sort of fixed it and sold that to AT&T. That company was called GRC International. And then I moved over to from AT&T to McDonnell Bradley to help, uh, which I would encourage anyone who's been in business and is mid-career to work in a small business. So we took McDonnell Bradley from under 20 million to about 70 million and sold that to Mantech in 2007. And that company was primarily in software application architecture, service-oriented architecture, and handling a lot of big, tough post-9-11 intelligence community issues. And from there into uh, Global Crossing, which was another telecommunications company uh, where we I ran the federal business for them. We had half of the world's internet traffic flowing through our subsea cables. This is pre-Snowden, so we did a lot of very sensitive work for the intelligence community, leveraging our global footprint and fiber optic network to help out the country at that time. And we sold that company to Level 3, and then I moved over to Kinetic, which we sold to Veritas, and then I moved to KW, which we recently sold to Jacobs Engineering. I would say through the time of that career migration, one of the fundamental things I learned back at AdTech between 86 and 96 was taking care of customers, taking care of people, and learning the business. I, at that time, also got an MBA at good old George Mason University. Thanks, John. As 2019 comes to a close, the M&A activity in Gov, the GovCon space has been very active. As a senior executive leading some of these transactions, notably the most recent sale of KW, where you were the COO to Jacobs, what would you say the key components of making a successful sale are? So I think for the buyer, you know, there's a hundred things that may drive a buyer's business strategy, organic growth, new product lines, new solution lines, new agencies and new technologies. And I think as, you know, a buyer thinks about where they want to be in three to five years, there, there should typically be, depending on the strength of the balance sheet, an ability to buy. And Within that, you know, sphere of what uh, characteristics they would be looking for to buy a company, they're typically going to, you know, look at, you know, technology, customers, length of contracts, type of contracts, revenue generation, return on investment and things like that. And then from a sell side, it's really about, you know, running good company and any good company, whether it's 100 people or 10,000 people should have the fundamentals down of growth on the top line, the bottom line. You know, obviously lower debt as 
as required, but also to be thinking if you are a seller and you're thinking about, you know, preparing your company for sale, you should be considerate of your ability to operate within a larger company independent of, you know, typically the leadership that's there today is not going to survive the transaction. So can that company survive independent of that leadership? And that's a, a fundamental uh, flaw that a lot of companies don't think through as they do prepare for sale is to think through how is that company going to operate inside a larger company over the next zero to five years. And what would you say the largest misconceptions of why an acquisition or sale of a company occurs? Well, I think there's always, you know, sort of like professional sports, there's always the Monday morning quarterback, You're, you pick up a paper and say, well, so-and-so just bought so-and-so, I, I don't understand that, or, or that will never work. So, you know, unless you're in, inside the boardroom of, of the buyer and, and perhaps the seller, you really don't know. So it's really not fair to, you know, kind of criticize a, another deal. So I think there's a, a, a common misperception about you know, what does that buyer need? How are they facing the market? Are they divesting out of one area? For example, when Jacobs acquired us, they had just divested uh, a $3.5 billion oil and gas engineering business that was global to an Australian company and surviving CFIUS and kind of reverse CFIUS, which took up to 18 months. So they had a lot of cash, but also they also wanted to increase their margin production on the government side. So our ability to do that, you know, kind of made hand hand in glove what what they were looking for in terms of the KW acquisition. But I, I think unless you're on the inside, it's inappropriate to, to really criticize what the buyer and the seller are looking for. And I think that is a, a common misperception. Makes sense. As we move into the election year of 2020, um, what do you anticipate the M&A climate to be in the GovCon space? Well, it certainly appears, you know, based on the five-year defense plan and how some of the out-year budgets are, that in the near term, you know, say next 18 months, things will continue to be strong. Companies will continue to perform. Larger companies will continue to want to consolidate and and buy up into either buy into new markets or buy up strength and capacity in existing markets and and product lines. And and in spite of, you know, I don't, one thing that I, I think hasn't resolved since the 80s, is the inherent slowness in, in the government procurement process. And I don't see any real solution to that, but I think budgets are strong. I think the areas of artificial intelligence, you know, DevSecOps, autonomy, cyber, the ability to build products for ISR areas, sensors that can go into space and be launched rapidly on small sets. I think those are all strong areas. And I would believe that if you're in those spaces and if you're performing well and you have a good core business and you have the right characteristics of top and bottom line growth, you should be a, a target for, you know, potential acquisition. Are you able to share a M&A war story from one of your many transactions over the years? One that goes way back was really my first one that I got personally involved in was in 1996. So the company I first came to had been bought and sold a couple of times. It was called AdTech. It got bought by M Hart and then merged with PRC and then ultimately sold to Black & Decker. And Black & Decker was looking at this professional services technology company that was in shipbuilding and a bunch of other things. Didn't really fit with their core business of hardware locks and, and toasters. So they put us in play and Litton, which at the time was a massive defense contractor, this was prior to their acquisition by Northrop, bought us. However, my business, the Aegis contract, uh, was preventing a sale to go through and Black & Decker wanted the cash and Litton wanted the company. So what happened was we had eight weeks through a federal consent decree to sell ourselves and 
be completely separated from the parent. And I ran that process with a bunch of others. And that was really eye-opening in terms of hand-on selling a company in a team and making a transition. I put a bid in for it. I, I, we lost uh, our bid to a company called Marconi, which is now part of BAE. But it was very educational in terms of the entire process, the federal regulatory approvals that are required and get it a big contract sold in, in eight weeks or less was uh, significant and a learning process for me. Sure. But we wanted to switch on to some personal questions. If you could go back and give your younger self career advice or life advice, or what would you say to yourself? So I think as I look back, I, I would say to, and whether I've said it to my kids or whether they listen, would be interesting to find out. But I, I think it's important to always put yourself in the shoes of, of the person and the people you work for, whether it's the shareholders, the board members, the CEOs, and to try to understand through their their eyes, you know, sitting behind their desk for a day, what, what are they worried about? What keeps them up at night? And I think if you can make that that leap early in your career, it's very helpful in terms of how you articulate concerns about the business opportunities. I recently read, you know, General Mattis's book and, and he, he beats himself up a little bit saying he did not do enough to convince the tactical commander and the National Command Authority or about his ability to take his task force, which was there in, in Afghanistan in 2001 to the uh, area where Osama bin Laden was ha- hiding out. And of course, as we know, we didn't catch him then. He blames himself and his inability to convince the leadership of his Marines and the task force and their ability through intelligence and firepower to uh, to create a different outcome where they believe they would have captured Osama bin Laden. So I think, you know, that's similar to how I would view myself and what I would say to younger people in their career is, you know, take the ownership and, and drive till you can get the decision or result that you want and, and don't don't leave yourself short. What is your favorite city to visit and what do you enjoy doing there? So I think overseas, I would say Amsterdam because of its great maritime heritage. I I once worked for a a Dutch shipping company and always have fond memories of working with the Dutch at sea. And then, you know, it's just a beautiful city where the food is good and the the, the literate environment is just really kind of welcoming. And then I think in in the USA, I'd say San Diego, just because of its its climate, It, it does have obviously a robust sports and leisure component to San Diego. The food is good. It's easy to get around. There's good business there. They've been able to diversify off just kind of the Navy town. And there's a lot of good telecom and software technology kind of up and down the the coast there between LA and and, uh, San Diego. So I'd put those two as the top of my list of always enjoy traveling there. Can you share with us an, an app device or type of technology you personally love and tell us why? Certainly, I'd say two. Uh, I'm into uh, boating and sailing, so there's a whole host of free apps now, like Windy for you know surf and 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 wind uh, forecasting. There's great free navigational software, tide software. So I think from the nautical perspective, there's just a tremendous amount of good free apps out there. Or if you pay a couple bucks, you know, for a radar app, it's only 10 bucks a year. And then I would also say, you know, through about four or five companies, a couple of times I had the opportunity to install with my team, the enterprise version of Salesforce. And I've really enjoyed working with Salesforce. It's uh, a tremendous platform. It's evolved. It was telling to me uh, probably five or six years ago, 
we had positioned really well with a certain workflow tool, another company and a civilian account and went after a big deal, a couple hundred million dollars and, and we lost. And we said, well, who did we lose to? We lost to another application integrator who was using Salesforce. And we all kind of scratched our heads and said, we didn't know Salesforce was, was in that business and would be considered for by the government for uh, a workflow. But now if, if you look around many agencies to include the DOD and the intelligence community, Salesforce is being used in a very robust way. I, I like their, their force.com, their open, you know, easy architecture that developers can get underway and produce useful, secure code in, in relatively short time. So I, I would really, you know, say Salesforce has been, you know, commendable in its ability to enter the space and, and help out the government in the national security space in a relatively easy fashion. Thank you. What's on your reading list now? If you can tell us about each book, why it's on the list, and you're taking away from each book. Certainly. I, I mentioned General Mattis' book, Call Sign Chaos. I think that's good. It, it, it's a nice autobiography written about his career and kind of the credentials and, and sort of innate characteristics of a Marine and someone who's aspired to the to the top of his command as well as, you know, as he himself was, is a great reader and he goes back to Caesar and some of the, the, the great Roman generals and used a lot of what happened even in the Indian war. He tells stories about how some of his reconnaissance was, was replicating how the uh, cavalry used to track down the Apache Indians in the West. So it's, it's kind of an interesting book, and I would, I would commend that to anyone or recommend that. Another one I read recently was uh, A Curious Mind by Brian Glazer. This was recommended by the CEO of Bank of America. It's kind of an interesting story about how this guy became a great producer of Hollywood films, but he's done over, I think, 300 interviews of notable people from – Dr. Teller to Stephen Hawking. And he, and he has this approach about, you know, really being curious about what drives people. Uh, he's an expert at open-ended questioning and he's uh, what I would consider probably a level five listener if you use the, the levels of listening. But it's just a fascinating book about how to approach people from different backgrounds, different industries, different, you know, futures around their, you know, desires and how they got to where they are. And then the third one I just finished was the John Le Carre book just came out, Agent Running the Field, which is, you know, if you enjoy a spy thriller, he's probably the best of the best. And this one is quite germane to current global threats between the U.S. and, and the good folks and or not so good folks over in Russia. John, what is something most people don't know about you personally? I would say they can probably tell from my sports uh, affinity that I'm from Boston. And then I do play hockey still, which is kind of odd at my age, but old guys can still play hockey. And I'm a grandfather, proud to say of my four kids. Some have been in the GovCon space and one of them still is. Three of them are kind of out and doing commercial work now, but we've got three grandchildren. We're very happy that they're all here in the DC area currently. And, and we spend a lot of time with them as well. And the last question is, John, what's next for you? Thank you, JD. So I'm helping a couple of companies that uh, I've known for years try to, you know, get their business plans and their priorities aligned to the current market and what we see happening over the next three years in terms of maximizing their, their business results. I'm also under, you know, a one year non-compete with my, my good friends at, at Jacobs and, and, and respecting that I'm going to do some teaching at George Mason. I'm teaching uh, cybersecurity workshops and also teaching a business operations class and then some travel with my wife. Also the, 
doing volunteering with the Wounded Warrior Mentor Program, which is a little-known program that works at major military hospitals to help prepare active duty service members who have been injured, combat, non-combat injuries, and prepare them for, you know, returning to their hometowns and, and dealing with it, whatever, you know, disabilities they may have and, and ensuring that they've got the finances, the education, and the planning to uh, have a good life once they leave the active duty. You mentioned the M&A story. Maybe if you could expand upon another war story on M&A or something you learned from it beyond the regulatory part. Because I know as someone who's read a lot about M&A but never been in a room, maybe you could put us in a room of an M&A deal without naming the companies about the whole process of, you know, sometimes, John, people say to me, the J.D., you're looking at it wrong. Sometimes on these transactions, the end goal is the M&A. It doesn't matter the financials. So that's one aspect, one question. Or maybe if you could talk about maybe your leadership style, like maybe like you mentioned General Mathis, but maybe your the way you would approach leadership in general, what type of leadership are you a servant leader? How do you view leadership since you're now in the classroom? Okay, excellent. So on, on the M&A side, I have had the, the productive and constructive experience of seeing all kinds of approaches from, you know, if you liken it to, to buying a car, some buyers will come in and kick the tire take it not just for a, a test drive around the block, but they'll put a hundred people in the car and, and test drive it, you know, to California and back and spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time on, on the details of the contracts, the, the margins, the, the recompetes, the funding, the, you know, kind of down to a tertiary level of audit in terms of all the compliance and, and it, it, consumes an inordinate amount of time where you and your team really need to be on their toes and in a very polite and constructive way, ready to answer every question, fill up a reading room and work with your your third party representatives, whether they're the bankers or the attorneys on all the issues. And then there are other buyers who may come in and, and kick the tire and put someone in the backseat and drive around the block and and come back with an offer. <laughs> and sometimes that's the, uh, the winning offer. And, and I think what's is common is, is there is no right approach. It's whatever works for the buyer. And I think, you know, you see big deals and large deals, each one, whether it's, you know, $10 million or a uh, billion dollars is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take the tremendous amount of effort from people who are also trying to operate their company and must be mindful of the burden you put on your team, whether it's your program managers, your senior vice presidents, your your group presidents, your finance team, your control or your BD team about, you know, because they still have to be producing for the company while you're selling the company. It's a very difficult thing to to manage those priorities. So keeping balances is critical. But I, I think the underlying thing for, for any seller or someone who's thinking of selling in the next five years is to be really considerate of the basic fundamentals of keeping your people happy, your customers happy, and growing your top and bottom line. If you do that, generally everything takes care of itself. Okay. Then on leadership, is there someone in GovCon that you admire, that you learn from, a mentor, someone that had an impact on your career? You know, I think going back to, you know, the first question about how, how I started, I had the, the fortune to work at advanced technology, which produced some of the, some of the iconic leaders, you know, Bill Hoover, Paul Lombardi, a lot of them, Bill Webb that had Navy backgrounds that worked with us in Crystal City and helped build that, that fleet of ships, quite honestly, which helped win the Cold War. So the, you know, we were building a 600 ship Navy at that point and, and we kept the Russians on their heels and, and those ships were, were pretty critical to the effects of 1989 and the wall coming down. But through that process of working with folks like that, 
learning program management, learning business development, how to write a winning compliant proposal, how to price right, how to hire people, retain people, treat people well, values. We had diversity back then. We had quality management back then. We did CMMI back then. I think that was, you know, really fundamental in terms of just running a good business and, and able to work with customers, work with, you know, lieutenant commanders who ultimately became four-star admirals. So I, I would say the ad tech experience, you know, and if a company, if you're running a company today and you're not doing that with your, your program managers and your, your entry level, you know, folks, you should be, you know, take a time out and say, what kind of company am I building? How am I training these people? Am I training them to be future leaders? And I think that training experience and that experience helped me become what I would call a leadership style from the front where I was constantly, and I would encourage everyone who's in business, owning a piece of business to be out with your customers, understanding what makes them tick. Where's the, where's the next challenge? Where's the, where's the money? If we could do A plus B, could we solve C? And then, you know, the same thing with your people. What, what do they see? They're closest to the customer. They're going to see things. They're going to sense things. You want them to be comfortable and, and risk-free and bringing back problems, whether it's how they get paid, whether how they get their expenses paid, how they get their healthcare benefits. Can they get someone on the phone when they're, when they have a child that's sick and, you know, that kind of thing. And can you do that consistently such that your employees will stay with you and help be part of your, your future business? So I think those fundamentals of taking care of your customers, taking care of your people, and constantly be in touch because people won't tell you what you need to know. And that's a big thing. And the only way to break that gap is to get out, get into the line and as far to the point of the spear as you possibly can. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes.